Hey guys, Joseph Jordan here. This is the Touch with Fire podcast, where every week I endeavor not to waste your time. Uh, we are on episode two of season one right now, uh, and it's called Hashtag Never Forget. Now, as you can probably tell from the title, this one's about 9-11, and if you're sensitive to that kind of stuff, this one might not be the episode for you. And in the spirit of not wasting your time, uh, let's just get started. I'm awakened by my clock radio playing KPCC out of Pasadena, or I think I am. But then I hear my roommate saying my name for the next room over. Joseph, he says. Joseph. I stick my head through the doorway that separates our rooms. His is much neater than mine. He's sitting on a swivel chair at his computer, completely naked. He sleeps naked, I think. His head is in his hands. What's up, I say. They crashed a plane into the World Trade Center, he says. In the days and weeks after 9-11, I found myself radicalized. While most of the country lurched into bloodlust, I was overtaken with a profound sense of shame in America. Some of this is just being young and sequestered at a very liberal little college in California. But that can't have been all of it, because one of the signal features of the American bloodlust after 9-11 was that it penetrated into corners of life that were usually resistant to that sort of thing. A lot of flags went up in people's dorm windows. A few guys dropped out to join the army, abandoning a college that was expert in churning out future screenwriters, lawyers, bankers. Even at my little college, the environment became censorious and tolerant of disagreement. I realize now that there was no way that any country with the means would not have extracted some blood from somebody for what happened that day. At the time, it just made me sick. Little American flags on plastic sticks bloomed from the windows of people's cars. I snapped them off and left them in gutters. An issue of Time came out. On its cover were the words, God bless America. I found every copy I could and scribbled out the word bless. I replaced it with the word fuck. I took to the internet to write vicious anti-imperialist screeds. I yelled at strangers. I ended some friendships. In retrospect, I think I lost my mind just as much as everybody else did. I'm not proud of any of that, by the way. I'm just telling you the truth. I turn up the volume as far as I can on that little clock radio and listen. It's after 7 in the morning, West Coast time. Both of the towers have been hit. The North Tower is down. Bob Edwards is hosting Morning Editions. Um, both towers now have collapsed. Jackie, can you see that? Ah, uh, yeah, okay. Well, no, you, I can't, what I see are these clouds of smoke. Okay, well, that would make sense. I mean, a horrible kind of sense, uh, because uh, I, had, I had thought for sure the North Tower, and if it's both towers, then, then that's what you're reading. Um, it, it's just, uh, 
You know, it, it is just, I think, everyone's worst nightmare, and we are now living it out, sorting it out. There's a terrible reality to everything that takes on the quality of surreality or unreality. It is immediately clear, in a way that it never has been before, that the world has changed. Nobody knows how yet. Least of all me, still half asleep in my dorm room in Los Angeles. I call my mom. She tells me she doesn't care who did it, Iraq, Iran. We should bomb them into the ground. I've never really heard her shaken like this before. Her voice quavers. The world has changed. Nobody knows how yet. I call my best friend from high school who was asleep in his girlfriend's dorm room thousands of miles away. When I tell him what happened, he says, what? He says it over and over again for the next few minutes. What? I mean, what? It's amazing to remember how frightened we were, even across the country, even months, years after. The concern in L.A. was that they would poison the water supply, which was essentially impossible to protect. They were up to a lot, or could be. They hid in the dark and planned murder. They had anthrax and dirty bombs. They hated us for who we were. Much less thought was put into who we were. We were America. Whatever that was. I was taking a class in book printing that fall, which required hours of meticulous work, setting type, inking it up, rolling the paper over it. I would go to the typography lab late at night to listen Just to the BBC World Report, set type, and fume. None of these demands were met. And now, the Taliban will pay a price. President George Bush, after ordering US Sometimes my girlfriend would come bring me food in the wee hours, and I would rant to her about the criminal idiocy of going to war or the actions of individuals. I think that's what I was mad about. Though I can never forget the way I felt in those days. I can never remember the logic. The first time I have the thought, I hope it was white people, is shortly after I get off the phone with my mom. The biggest terrorist attack in U.S. history to this point is the bombing of a federal office building in Oklahoma City seven years ago. The indictment charges that Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols, former army buddies with a grudge against the government, planned the bombing, selected the Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City as their target, bought and stole materials for the bomb, and built it. McVeigh is specifically charged with having delivered the bomb to the Murrah Building in a truck that he rented under a false name, and having detonated the bomb at the Murrah building. The boogeyman I was taught to worry about was the lone white guy with a rifle and a bag of fertilizer. But I know instinctively now that if this is not white people, there's going to be hell to pay. My mother, my mother, yearns for more blood. I don't say it aloud until an hour or two later when my friend Mike and I are driving up to a mall to buy an antenna so that we can hook it up to the TV that sits in my roommate's room. I say, I hope it was white people. He says, I've been thinking the same fucking thing.
The rage would fade, surely it would, wouldn't it? It didn't. Never forget, we said to one another. The nation had a psychotic break and I had one right along with it. Then, 366 days after the attack, the new war was on. We meet one year and one day after a terrorist attack brought grief to my country. That's George Bush in 2002, talking to the UN Security Council. That date wasn't an accident, by the way. Yesterday, we remembered the innocent lives taken that terrible morning. Today, we turn to the urgent duty of protecting other lives without illusion and without fear. That date wasn't an accident, by the way. And our greatest fear is that terrorists will find a shortcut to their mad ambitions when an outlaw regime supplies them with the technologies to kill on a massive scale. In one place, in one regime, we find all these dangers. 12 years ago, Iraq invaded Kuwait without provocation. The Iraq war never really had anything to do with Al-Qaeda. If you paid close enough attention, you could tell it had nothing to do with Al-Qaeda even then. If you paid close enough attention, you couldn't help but be sick to your soul about what was happening. The literal ruins of the World Trade Center had only been cleared for a few months. They would go on finding bodies in the ground for another two and a half years. And already we were being sold a new war, an unrelated war, with a varnish of those people's blood painted across its shields. I graduated college by then, was sharing a house in Palo Alto with some friends and working at a little suburban newspaper. I would sit in the backyard beneath a loquat tree and read the New York Times front to back every day, boiling in my rage. On the opinions page of this old paper, this bastion of reason and ethics, we were told that the new war was righteous, that it was good, that it would be easy and over soon. Some days I would rip the paper apart when I was done. This is going on now in two cities. We have a report that uh, there is a fire at the State Department as well, and that is being evacuated. So we've got fires at the Pentagon evacuated, the State Department evacuated, the White House evacuated on the basis of what the Secret Service describes as a as a credible can be employed as as weapons of terrorists. What is our military doing right now, General Haig? What should they be doing? Well, they have to be on full alert, and I would have hoped that we would get some aircraft up in the air to enforce the ban on flights. Uh, that has to be done if it has not already been done, and I'm sure it has been. All right, General uh, Alexander Haig, former Secretary of State, thanks for being with us. Uh, Rick Leventhal once again with our producer Carlos Van Meek is in lower Manhattan. Uh, you cannot even see the sky there because of the soot, the ash, the crumbled concrete that is continuing to oh, rain down. There it goes, there it goes, there it goes. 
Oh, when it comes down here. All right. We do need to put it down now. I think we need to put it down now. Here we go. Try to track down John McCarthy, our correspondent at the Pentagon. He was evacuated. I'm saying this as much to our control room as anybody. Um, he, like everybody else, was evacuated. I'd also like to talk with Commander Claire Shipman at the, at the White House um, to see what the progression is going to be at Capitol Hill. Because we do know that the leadership of the Senate, at least, Senator Daschle removed to a secure location uh, while much of this was going on. But it is very difficult to get through on anybody's cell phone. This is, Pierre Thomas, another reminder of, you wonder if this is something that people anticipate. We now live in the age of cell phone, we now rely on cell phones for so much. When there's chaos like this, too many people on the cell phones, they don't work. Well, one of the things that they have to do That would be the South Tower has apparently collapsed. We don't know if that was from the impact of this first plane that hit it, or whether something else has happened there, we'll work on that. Our Washington bureau chief, Frank Sesno... We sit for hours transfixed. We smoke cigarettes indoors and people come in and out. There seem to be people walking around everywhere aimlessly as though drugged. What's going on, people keep asking. What's going on? By noon, we have seen the towers fall over and over again. We have seen the planes hit over and over again. We have imagined ourselves in the planes and in the towers. We have seen the people who lean from windows that spew smoke. We have seen them steal themselves and jump. We've seen them fall and fall and fall. I watched the war begin on TV at a friend's house in East Palo Alto. We talked about baseball and stared at a nearly static image of a street in Baghdad waiting for bombs. The picture had the eerie green of night vision, and I remember very distinctly seeing a pair of taillights on a car I pulled out of a driveway and drove leisurely down an empty street. What a strange feeling that must have been. Then, the face they called shock and awe. the statue of Saddam Hussein pulled down on my 23rd birthday and for the first time consciously turned away from the news. I would do this again and again over the ensuing years. When it became too awful, too phony and venal, or too violent and grotesque, I would turn away. sailors at the USS Abraham Lincoln, my fellow Americans. Major combat operations in Iraq have ended. In the Battle of Iraq, the United States and our allies have prevailed. And this speech, this speech I could not bring myself to listen to before today.
The day takes on the hazy quality of nightmare. Nobody goes to class. Because the television is in our room, it becomes a hub for my group of friends. People file through and gaze dreamily at the images on the screen. Then they disappear to go call their parents and friends. Some people have family in New York, whose family is unreachable. The flights from Boston were bound for Los Angeles. Do we know anybody on those planes? Soon the shock, the childlike terror of watching people die, actually die, starts to wear off. We wonder aloud if we'll go to class tomorrow. None of us will. We search the internet to see if anything has happened closer to us in Los Angeles, San Francisco, Seattle. It hasn't. There are only more images of the towers, aflame, collapsing, gone. At one point, hours into the disaster, a friend bursts suddenly into tears as though hit with a spell. We ask her what's wrong. I don't know, she says. I don't know, I don't know. And soon most of the rest of us are crying, too. It's hard to explain the horror to people who don't remember it, though I keep on trying. It first dawned on me that these people existed when I started teaching college and discovered that my students, all old enough to vote, had experienced 9-11 the way I had experienced something like the Challenger disaster, dimly through the vector of their parents. I asked them if they remember the dark days of Bush's first term, when many people still believe the lies that he told, when Ari Fleischer could say a question was not helpful to a reporter and it would shut them up, when those of us who opposed the war were called traitors in the press and caricatured as out-of-touch holdovers from the Vietnam era. No, they said. They really didn't. They were children. They had lived their whole lives with a constant sense of far-off emergency. They just didn't really know why. For those of us who lived it, it comes up again and again and again. Years later, I myself moved to New York, where the site of the towers was by then under perpetual construction. On the walls in the subways, the lunatic or stupid took sharpies and scribbled 9-11 inside job everywhere. Often people responded with graffiti of their own, calling them names or simply scratching out their silliness. The specter of that day lay in wait around blind corners in unexpected dead ends, came up in conversations you never knew could happen. You remember the Ground Zero mosque? A friend from high school posted his objection to it on Facebook while I was living in New York. I told him to keep his fucking hands off my city, and we haven't spoken since. The day Bin Laden was killed, I was working at a bookstore in Soho. My boss and I watched a video of a bunch of kids waving flags, dancing in the streets at Ground Zero. I don't know why, but it made me sick. The evil that ramified outward from that place and that day would not end because years later we killed an old man who thought that evil was good. Just as I will never again look at the New York skyline without feeling a twinge of loss, I will never again see an American flag without feeling a twinge of fear. On the bad days, that flag has scared me just as much as the disaster itself. Maybe that's why I felt sick. 
but still the memory fades. How else to explain the fact that this year on 9-11, the hashtag never forget was trending on Twitter? If we hadn't forgotten at least a little bit, would we really be able to turn the act of remembering into a meme? What does it mean not to forget? In the spirit of not forgetting, we have killed and died and meddled where no one should. In the spirit of not forgetting, we have been asked to police ourselves and each other in frightening ways. In the spirit of not forgetting, it sometimes seems that we have been poisoned. Just a couple of weeks ago, the day before the anniversary, a Sikh man in Chicago was savagely beaten by a teenager screaming about Bin Laden. A turban and a beard, that's all it takes. Is this how we never forget? That boy, the suspect, must have been an infant on 9-11. Do we keep the memory, guard and protect it, by teaching our children this? It seems to me that the answer to that question is, and always has been, yes. This is the effect of the plastic, terrorizing sort of faux memory we have. The media memory. And now the hashtag memory. Violence. I propose we abandon hashtags. Facebook posts, yes, podcast episodes. I propose that for good we cease urging ourselves to remember. Let there be no more arguments with truthers or neocons. May another Northeastern politician never invoke that day on the stump again. Let those who must mourn, mourn. Let the memories be of people, people who died for no reason, people whose deaths grew symbolic, people whose memories should not be tarnished with the use to which they were put. This is the only way. We are a nation gone insane all these years later. We must let it go.